Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. All right, John, summer is grinding on, you know, and it continues to be hot here in July. But we have good news. We do have good news. Five Saturdays before college football starts. I like it. I'm, it all, about, I'm all about college football starting it back. Is you know, almost it, here. This is a hard time of the year for sports fans. That's true. You it know? is. It's I mean, the law. You it know? is. You got baseball. We got baseball, but, but yeah, that's about it, and it's just... Just it's quiet. kind of quiet out there. It's and, when everybody has mm. national title hopes. You know, Carolina zero and zero right now, and you know, you just never know. You never know. They could be Clemson this year. <laughs> they you could. never know. They could. They could be probably not, but challenging for the national championship. Keep that uh, that hope alive. That's what keeps that's, us going. That's it. That's it. But meanwhile, you know, yeah, you might want to get inside. It's it's still smoking out there. But uh, speaking of smoking, though, we have a smoking show lined up for you here. We, we have some, some good great, topics. We have some great topics. Yeah, we're going to start off with talking about timing isn't everything. Mm. I know people tend to think that timing, when it comes to investments, is everything. But uh, we have research, new research, that proves the opposite. Yes. So uh, that'll be insightful. DFA timely, wrote that. Really timely good. research. Fantastic information. Then we're going to switch over to... Um, causes of uh, marital stress. Money is like the second leading cause of divorce. And um, you probably don't realize this, but you're actually going to be giving advice to couples out there, right? Yes. I'm going yes. to uh, kind of set you up, but then you're going to put on your counselor hat and you're going to be telling people what to do. I got you. Yeah, I did that a little bit this week, by okay, the way. Okay, well, good. You know, That's kind of what we do sometimes. Yeah, unfortunately, it was not a good conversation because somebody... It just shows how important this is, you know. I mean, they're on the, you know, the brink mm-hmm. because of money oh, issues. Yeah. We money see it issues. Often. Yep. Very often we see it. I had that conversation just this week, so it's it's very very important. You want to tune in for that. It's a good, very good uh, topic to to zero in on. Um, by the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro with over 24 years experience in providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis, also a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro. I have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 27 years. And we're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every Friday afternoon. Yeah, check out our website, moneymd.net. We have a link to the podcast. You can mm-hmm. listen to the uh, current weeks or go back and listen to the historical ones. A lot of good information on our website as well and the financial resources we have a retirement plan calculator some other really good um, tools that you ought to check out everybody needs to go to the website and look at that facebook page which is money md we post a video out there weekly and also a twitter handle which is money md that's right and do check us on our website and eat, send us your emails we'd love to hear from you you can email us directly at info at moneymd.net well, John, we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week, and you're going to you're going to get me right on top of my soapbox. Here. Yeah, we we have a little energy around this topic. We do. This, we have a lot of experience with this topic. We do. We do. So this is this comes from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and uh, we talk about this you know periodically. Certainly, Dave Ramsey and Rachel Cruz talk about this a lot. Student loan debt, Steve, has doubled in the United States since uh, 2009, so it's up to about 1.5 trillion dollars. So in 10 years, it's doubled. And it's quadrupled since 2005. Ouch. So, the, the, you know, you, you hear a lot about this in the news. And, you know, there are there are ways to graduate today without any student loan debt. But also the system is broken. 
The system is broken, and it's a shame, you know, because it's a crisis for, you know, new grads. We, we sit down with folks all the time that come out and have fifty, even $100,000 of debt, student loan debt. They'll be paying back for years. I mean, it sets them back, you know, five, you know, ten years sometimes in their quest to become, you know, financially successful. And it's a shame. And I don't know who to blame other than the university system, honestly. You know, um, I, I don't know. I mean, they... They raise their prices because they can, you mm-hmm. know. So the more money gets in the system, the more easier the loans are, the more universities simply raise their prices. And even with online education, they prevent it from becoming affordable. You know, they don't lower their prices. And it was a kind of a burn in my saddle when my kids went to college here, you know, not too long ago when we were paying for college. Half their classes were online classes they would sit in their dorm room and take. Mm-hmm. And the university would charge the same per credit hour for those classes yeah. as they did for the the, the in in classroom classes. Yeah, the system definitely needs to be be overhauled and and more information for the students about what major they're getting into and what that looks like on the other side of it. Because a lot of things are not paying enough to pay for the student loan. That's right. Yeah, it's all important. But yeah, I think at some level, colleges. I mean, Congress probably needs to step in and kind of legislate a solution legislate a solution because you know more dollars are not going to solve the problem and and without you know increasing the supply more dollars only raises the price and you know ultimately i think the accreditation process needs to change because right now universities you know they they're in charge of the diploma right to get a diploma from clemson you have to go to clemson well, I think the diploma should be from the college board in chemical engineering or you know economics or whatever you're getting your degree in, mm-hmm. and you you have a resume of a portfolio of classes you t- that you can take from any university really is the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, that way, universities, you know, if you have a thousand universities that are competing for those classes to offer then the price goes down and it becomes more affordable and they want they, they want more people. Yeah, competition you know? typically drives the price down. So. That's it. You need some competition. So, you know, no more college diplomas. I think that's the thing. It needs to be a yep. a, uni- a a diploma at the, you know, at the at the uh, college board level. And you said one um, thing that kind of concerns me a little bit. Congress should act. I mean, what are they that are they yeah. doing anything to to act other than acting up unfortunately (laughs) they are yeah somebody needs to get in congress to champion this this cause because meanwhile meanwhile so many kids are getting out with huge student loan changing their lives it is so interesting fact of the week but unfortunately a depressing fact of the week john thanks for that i'll I'll, I'll uh, work on it next week (laughs) that's right let's get some more positive next time um but here's something that is positive and that is you know there are ways to be successful with investing and there are ways that to not be successful with investing, but timing isn't everything. And um, this is a, based on an article out of uh, Dimensional Funds um, very recently. And But, John, you know, the lure of that, mer- that perfect market timing move can tempt even the most disciplined long-term investor. And it's kind of the proverbial, you know, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, mm-hmm. you know, um, if you could get it right. But outguessing the market isn't as straightforward as it sounds. And over the course of a summer, you know, it's not unusual for the stock market to kind of be the conversation of topic at barbecues and your, you know, social gatherings, you know. And a neighbor or a relative might ask you which investments are good at the moment. 
Everyone has at least one winner to talk about, right? Yeah, Uncle Joe has, you know, is talking to you about the hot stock. Of course, there's <laughs> always that. <laughs> and, you know, then there's the lure of of getting in at the right time or avoiding the next downturn, which has, you know, proven to be the elusive mirage um, that tempts even the staunchest buy-and-hold investor. But the reality, you know, of successful market timing is that it isn't as straightforward as it sounds. You know, there's more than meets the eye when it comes to catching the perfect stock market wave. Um, so let's dig into a little bit of the reasons why history shows that it's a full-hearted endeavor to try to time the stock market. Yeah, I mean, attempting to buy individual stocks or make, you know, asset allocation changes at exactly the right time, it really presents investors with a substantial challenge and, quite frankly, is impossible. I mean, that's what the, the data and the statistics right. show. And first and foremost, markets are fiercely competitive and adept at processing information in minutes if not seconds. And so to, to give you some, some, some data here, during 2018, a daily average of $463 billion in equity trading took place around the world every single every day. That's a lot of $463 billion. It is. And the combined effect of all this buying and selling is that all available information from economic data to investor preferences and so on is quickly incorporated into the market price. So trying to time the market based on an article from this morning's newspaper or segment from financial television or your Uncle Joe, it's it's too late. It's already in the – Way late. Yeah, the only people that have an advantage is insiders, and that's illegal to trade on insider information. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. Yeah, it's long been been already reflected in the market prices. And, you know, there's a recent study that the performance of actively managed funds – and that's funds that are trying to do some kind of market timing and beat the market. Um, this study shows that they rarely beat the market. Over the last 20 years, only 77, well, 77% of stock funds and 92% of bond funds failed to survive and outperform their closest index. Yeah. I mean, so that just goes to show, you know, it, it is only, it's only like, what does that leave? Seventeen percent or thirteen? Yeah, it's uh, a very 20, small amount. Twenty-three percent, less than a fourth of them that actually equal or beat the index. You know, and it's different every year. It's not the same funds. So, and also consider that for you to have a shot at successfully timing the market, you must make the right buy and sell uh, <clears throat> decision not just once but twice. Um, Professor Robert Merton, who's a Nobel Prize laureate, smart dude, smart dude, recently said in a recent interview that timing the market is the dream of everybody. Suppose you could verify that I'm a 700 hitter when calling market market turns. So 70 percent of the 70 percent of the time, yeah. right? 700 hitter. Um, that's pretty good. You'd hire me right away, right? Um, but to be a good market timer, you have to do it twice mm -hmm. in a row. Right. I mean, you have to make the right call two times in a row. So what are the chances of me getting it right with two independent decisions, which, by the way, they're not actually independent. It's worse than that. But if they were independent, then what you do is you have to multiply 70 percent times 70 percent. Well, what does that equal? Well, <laughs> that's like less than 50 percent. That's 49 percent. Right? <laughs> right. So the probability of getting both right in a row is less than 50 50 chance. If you're already a 70% hitter when it comes to to timing the market, um, of course, you're, you're much worse than a 70% hitter when it comes to timing the market. 
Um, and and those two decisions are not independent. Once you've once you've uh, made the first decision and you got it wrong, you're then you're trying to cut your losses. So you're likely to get the second decision wrong too. Um, so market timing is horribly difficult to do, and the odds are vastly against you. Yeah, and so you know we'll look at the uh, the S and P five hundred index right now. We hear hear the conversation a lot. It's had an incredible decade. It's there's no doubt it's done very very well, and and so should this result impact investors' allocations to equities? The average investor starts to get antsy when the markets reach new highs, making them more likely to sell out uh, or take a more conservative approach. And this natural emotion tendency to believe in a in a reversion to the mean makes investors less effective at market timing during good markets and, quite frankly, more likely to have a, a quick trigger finger on selling out. And the, the research, Steve, shows that new market highs have not been a harbinger of negative returns to come. In fact, the exact opposite is true. In the following one-year periods of the S&P 500, it actually did better than their long-term average. The S&P 500 went on to return at or above average returns over one, three, and five-year highs following new market highs. Now, obviously, past performance doesn't predict going forward, but that's right. this is the <clears throat> data. This is why folks like exactly. us are telling you, stay invested. We don't know when it's going to go down. But there's a process to handle that, too. Yeah, exactly. Rebalance. Just because the market, you know, has hit new highs. And, and just, by the way, it's just the S&P 500 that's hit new highs. That's right. <laughs> it's only large U.S. stocks. There are plenty of other asset classes that are far from new highs, okay? So the market in general is still in a recovery mode. Yeah, I had this conversation with a, a client the other day, and they were saying, well, the Dow's hitting new highs. And I'm like, do you have any stocks are in the Dow? He uh, said, no. And I'm like, 30. Right. 30 stocks. If you're in diversified in a worldwide portfolio, you have thousands and thousands and thousands of stocks. So you're looking at a very small piece of it. Yeah, it just so happens the Dow and the S&P 500 have hit new highs recently. But I don't know of any other asset classes hitting new highs. I mean, most of them are way off their highs mm -hmm. from January of 2018. Um, so they're still in a recovery mode. I mean, we had a bear market last year. so You're, you're leading up to the prescription of the week here. Don't, that's don't true. jump the gun oh, here. Don't let me get away. That's right. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but, you know, the point here is outguessing the market is more difficult than investors might think. You know, while while favorably timing, you know, is theoretically possible. There isn't evidence that it can be done reliably, even by professional investors. The positive news is investors don't need to time the market to have great investment results. You know, over time, markets have rewarded investors who take a long-term perspective, who remain disciplined in the face of these short-term noise that we see. And so by focusing on things they can control, like having the appropriate asset allocation, diversification, managing expenses, turnover, taxes, investors can better position themselves to make the most of stock markets that they have to offer. Um, so while we all know there are no guarantees when investing in the stock market, how can you give yourself better odds to improve your return over time? Well, actually, there are some ways to improve your return over time without playing the emotional game of Russian roulette with your portfolio. Yeah, that's one of the things that uh, DFA does a real great job of. They do a lot of academic research, and they've shown that there are three dimensions of higher expected returns among stocks uh, that can help you over time. And these, these dimensions are small stocks, value stocks, and profitability stocks. And looking back at history, these dimensions of higher return have shown you know, one to three percent uh, higher returns in the overall market. Um, you know, so if you weight your portfolio towards value, small and high profitability stocks, 
um, you know, you give your, yourself a chance to beat the market over time and outperform the major indexes like the S&P 500. Now, again, past performance doesn't predict going forward, but this is just the data that we see historically. Exactly. Right? This is why we structure the portfolios the way they do is, is we're trying to get those academically shown higher returns. Yeah, you want to put the odds in your favor. That's the whole point here. You know, and another tool for improving your odds over the market is to use funds that are well diversified but don't have a lot of trading because excessive trading runs up costs, which drives down returns. Studies have shown that funds with higher trading tend to underperform their closest index over time by more than funds with low trading. Of course, you know, it's no surprise that higher trading equals lower returns. Um, But most people don't realize that funds are engaging in market timing and stock picking and that that tends to, to lead to higher trading and higher costs. Yeah, so when you look at a mutual <clears throat> fund, the turnover ratio is kind of the indicator it's a of good indicator. how much, you know, trading and, and churning, not churning, but how much trading is going on underneath. You it's know, not the, the only factor because sometimes the turnover ratio is a more passive, it can it can be reflective of just new money coming into the fund and then buying stocks in a very patient way, mm-hmm. but an active manager tends to be in a hurry, mm-hmm. and that runs up costs a lot. So there is a difference there. And one more way to improve returns above indexes without market timing is by using funds which trade unpredictably and not on a set schedule like an index. Index funds inherently um, have some issues. While they have their place in retirement plans, I mean, they're good to have in a retirement plan when you don't have other choices out there like this, but um, they tend to trade on a very predictable schedule. And as a result, front runners, <clears throat> people tend to front run an index and they buy stocks just before they're added to an index. And then they sell them right after they're added to an index. And that in turn tends to be an extra cost for the index fund since they have to buy those stocks right after they're added to the index, after they've been run up in price or vice versa. Um, so instead, we, we suggest using asset class funds, which don't track a specific index. They avoid this link to the index and this predictable schedule of trading, and that gives them a better better chance <clears throat> at getting a better return. So the point is, you know, there are ways to get higher returns in a much more predictable and reliable way than attempting to time the market. So be sure your investment strategy is based on sound academic principles like we're describing there. Okay, and that leads us up here to our question of the week. In this question, we get uh, more and more, it seems like, you know, with baby boomers retiring 10,000 per day across the United States. The question that they all want to know is, you know, when can I retire and how do I know if I have have enough to retire? And basically, am I on track? And and so that's why we do the retirement plan, right? And, exactly. and really to answer if you know the, you know whether you have enough to retire is you look at your budget, which you have to have a budget and then you match it up with the income that's being generated from that retirement plan. And if they match, you know, you probably have enough to make that decision. So it helps not having a mortgage, right? Um, sure. It helps to have cash and a nice emergency fund built up as well. Um, so that's one of the key questions I think we, we work with our clients and prospects on as they come through is, you know, helping them make that, that determination. Cause I mean, I'm running across more and more people that have enough and they don't realize it. And so they're pulling the trigger and they're retiring sooner than they thought they would be able to. Yeah. That's and doing a great, some different stuff. So it's I know a great you, thing to be able to give somebody that confidence yeah. by running a real retirement plan. 
And that's one of the points here, I think, is you want to make sure you do real retirement planning. You know, not this back at envelope stuff that a lot of people do that just add up their expenses and they add up their income and they say, oh, I can take this much out of my portfolio and I'll be good. Yeah, you might be good for the first year, but that's not a real retirement plan. You know, it doesn't take inflation into account. It doesn't take, you know, um, future expenses into account. So you have to have a real retirement plan in place that looks at a long period, a lot of years, varying rates of return, you know, varying rates of inflation, maybe, you know, different retirement ages. You got to do some real retirement planning. It's too important. Mm -hmm. You can't just do the back of the envelope stuff and get this get this right. Um, so it's an important exercise. Very important. So great question of the week. All right. And that leads us up here to our uh, next topic, and that is the five causes of marital money stress. And how to fix them. And, and you're, how to fix and them. And you're going to tell us how to fix them. I'm looking forward to this. this Absolutely. This should be, should John, be fun. Absolutely. With your, with your wise, you know, your wisdom from the many years of being <laughs> married. So That's I, right. 30, how, many, how many years? Uh, it's 33 years, John. Okay. I'm 28. So Are you? I'm, I'm, okay. I'm close. Yeah, I've right. got a couple years uh, <laughs> to catch up with you. But this is from uh, Deborah Meyer. Uh, she's the CEO of Worthy Nest uh, LLC. And, um, you know, so the question is, is are you and your spouse burdened by financial stress? I mean, we see this as folks come through. Um, you're, if you are, you're not alone. According to marriage.com, money fights are the second leading cause of divorce. Um, and b- below are the main culprits. And we're going to kind of dive into that just right, right away. The first one is money temperament and so the you know the question that we yeah that you know, dave ramsey puts this as there's nerds and free spirits nerds like to all the numbers and budgeting and free spirits right. are out there just spending so um you know are you naturally inclined to spend or do you give money away to charity you know money personalities emerge in childhood um you know we see this with our kids i, I had two kids and they had slightly different um, views on money growing up. Now they're more similar today since they're you know adults. Um, but I would say in this section, if you don't know, um, if you're having trouble with money with your spouse, Dave Ramsey has a class, FPU, Financial Peace University. Right. Go sign up for that class. That is a great nine-week course. It'll yep. get you uh, on the same page. Yeah, that's very important that you both get on the same page, both get exposed to the same the same information about, you know, about money and you you start working through it together. Um, But yeah, when you self-identify as a saver and your spouse kind of identifies as a spender or vice versa, obviously relationship friction will likely ensue. I mean, people who are naturally intend to spend are not bad people, certainly, but it's a different personality and it's simply how they're wired. Um, so gently reminding your spouse of long-term goals versus short-term desires is more helpful than yelling after they, for instance. That's a good tip, Steve. Isn't that a great Thank tip? You. Yeah, so don't yell at your another, spouse. Okay. Don't yell at your spouse about money. All right, that's, that's good. There's, you so have another solution here. No yelling. There you go. There's another one here, too, you know, and it's uh, uh, it's to recognize and accept that there will be differences you know in your your uh your your money tendencies and you do that in love john love. you do it in love so this is the softer side of steve coming exactly. out exactly okay. you gotta do it in love john so when different money tendency temperaments you know cause conflict remember why you fell in love in the first place john had nothing to do with money right uh-oh what was it then <laughs> personality <laughs> okay. right it wasn't her looks or anything oh it like was that. looks yeah but i wasn't uh, gonna go yeah, there i, I mean you know say, i bet tammy was pretty 
I bet she got is. some tension, didn't she? Yes. She is still and, continues. She is yes. and was that's when right. y'all first met. I'm talking about when you first met. I'm yeah, not, that's right. I'm talking past tense here, <laughs> but present tense too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you attracted your spouse for a reason, and I'm sure it was love. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, it was, you must have some inclination of their spending habits prior to tying the knot, right? So you want to honor and celebrate the wonderful aspects of your of your wife and your spouse's personality rather than looking at their flaws recognize there are going to be differences and accept those differences is the first step that's right so uh one of the culprits is money temperament the second one here is secrecy and steve this is uh this is can be a bad habit um yeah, you know we see that's a bad uh, thing in marriage it is according to creditcards.com about 20 percent of americans uh in a committed relationship have spent more than 500 dollars without telling their significant other and about 6% of surveyed couples um, have a hidden bank account or credit card. Yeah, that's right. So you want to engage in open, honest conversations about money on a regular basis. You know, it becomes far easier <clears throat> to hide something when there is no built-in accountability or discussions. And it'll be much more difficult for your spouse to hide a credit card charge or open a new account if you're having weekly money talks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not that they would, but you, you want to be on the same page here. You want to have regular meetings with your spouse. Um, and, you know, and most therapists, you know, counselors will tell you, that you you need to have conversations surrounding money yeah. very frequently. Yeah, you do. And that's where the Dave Ramsey course, the FPU course, helps you get on the same process, same terminology. So if you haven't taken it, even if you're not having you know money issues with, with your spouse, it's a great course to, to change your life and also your kids as well. Uh, number three here on the list of uh, you know things that cause money tension is debt. And we see this. Young people marry, you know, it's typical for them to have student loans, credit card balances, car payments. Uh, problems are likely to form when one, spari- when one spouse carries significantly more debt um, than the other. And But it's not all doom and gloom. We've seen, you know, you know when, when they, if you work on it together and don't view it as one person's debt, you can certainly get through that, um, that piece of the, the puzzle. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, you need to empathize with your spouse. Um, Another first soft, of all, that's good. recognize your spouse isn't perfect. Perfect. No, no. You're saying Tammy's not perfect? <laughs> no, she's not. Man. Is Kathy? That's pretty rough there, John. Yeah, but Kathy, I think Kathy is perfect. pretty darn near perfect. Pretty darn near perfect. <laughs> good answer. <laughs> so I know that's a shock to you, you know, but... <laughs> <laughs> but you're not perfect either, right? No, our spouse isn't perfect. We're Neither are we that's perfect. Right. So we have to acknowledge that we all have flaws, and sometimes we make mistakes. You know, a person, you know, deeply in debt, they may have a money mindset issue that, you know, they can't tackle alone. So if your spouse is spending habits, uh, you know, if she's struggling with spending habits, they're out of control, consider having an accountability partner. You know, somebody you can talk to to help keep you on track. Yeah, another one here on the list, Steve, which uh, we do see earnings disparity is when the uh, the woman earns more than the husband. Um, uh, you know, if the marriage began in a conventional manager uh, manner, uh, it's especially hard for married couples to navigate a time when the wife out earns her husband. And sometimes we also see a stay at home mom when the when the father is the sole breadwinner. So again, um, you know, these can create difficult situations. So really. You know, it's not a, a joint venture. It is you got to consolidate and have one checking account, one savings account, one budget. You're working together. It's not a this is my money, this is your money. We do see people that that do that from second marriages, and um, certainly understand why they do that. It just I think it makes it a little bit more difficult um, in that uh, 
in, in that state. So, but we do see people that are successful doing it, but consolidate um, when you have earnings disparity. That's right. And then you got to recognize that, you know, life does get more expensive as your family expands. I mean, the average child from birth to age 17 cost about $230,000. Now, of course, according to reports um, from the Department of Agriculture, um, and that's excluding the cost of college. So raising three children can be much more expensive than raising one child, period. Um, so prior to marriage, many of us, you know, we spend money on things that we want or need with little regard for others. But when you get married and you have children, our priorities have to shift. I mean, you have to be considerate of others and your family and the best interests of your of your spouse and your overall family. Um, and that's going to entail some personal sacrifice. Yeah. So the solution is you just got to be prepared. I mean, you've got to look and discuss the uh, potential financial implications, you know, with a, a new child. Are you going to have to reduce work hours? Um, obviously, your expenses are going to increase. Um, with a simultaneous income decrease, that's going to create issues. So, you know, bottom line is, is it's talking. I'll, I'll go back to the FPU class again. It's a great course for young people, old people, everybody in between. It gives you a common terminology and process that you can work through these money issues. And um, we've seen it change lives around. So certainly would recommend that. That's right. So if you're having money issues with your spouse, I mean, the first first step is to have an honest conversation and to really start talking about it. Um, and start try to get on the same page about money. You can't ignore that issue. Yeah, and if you're not working with an advisor, go out and get a second opinion. Um, you know, maybe you have a good friend who's good at, at money and, and just kind of, you know, help get someone else to help you in that process. There's a lot of counselors out there as well that can help you. Yeah, don't ignore it. Don't let it continue because it can only lead to bad things. It can only get worse. So you, you got to address the issue and have that conversation and address it Um in some of the ways we just described. Okay, and that leads us up here to our prescription of the week. Yeah, see, this has to do with rebalancing, and uh, we talked about the S&P 500, um, which is the largest 500 stocks in the U.S., hit new highs, has done very well, has had an incredible decade, but that's also coming off a decade where they lost 1% per year, right? right so right. we saw, if you go back and look at history a little bit, back in the late 90s, S&P 500 averaged about 25% a year. People piled into it, and then the lost decade um, happened, and, and it right. made basically nothing for 10 years. So you got to be very careful. What we recommend is doing rebalancing. So that means selling a little bit of something that's done well, which is large U.S. stocks, and go putting them into some, some asset classes that are have underperformed. We don't know when they're going to turn around. Historically, they have always turned around. So buying low typically has been a good strategy. That's right. That's right. And today that would be, you know, small stocks, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and some international some international stocks, you know. So yeah, you want to rebalance your portfolio. It keeps you at the right risk level. Um and it also forces you to sell a little bit of what's high, buy a little bit of what's low. It's a discipline strategy and you need to make sure you take a look at that. Probably quarterly mm-hmm. is a good time to take a look at that. So great prescription of the week. Okay, well, that's been this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. And check us out on our website, moneymd.net. Email us your questions at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706 739 0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Have a good one. This program contains general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. This broadcast is not a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. SmartVestor Pro is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor.